time to make that move. In almost every area of life, if you want to be successful, there are certain ways that you have to do things. If you want to win an Olympic medal, you have to dedicate your life to training. There aren't any shortcuts. If you want to be a successful coach in any kind of sport, you have to study tactics for years. You have to watch endless videos of the opposition. If you want to be, for example, a doctor, you have to take a certain academic route to get there. There aren't too many doctors that can sing, I did it my way. They have to do it the university's way. There are set paths you have to follow in order to be successful. Now, you and I might not like these set paths. You or I might try to, for example, run a marathon with no training. But we will end up walking the marathon. We've got to follow the rules in order to succeed. But God does not. At least he doesn't have to follow our rules. God is able to succeed in his plans by doing things his way. And often his way goes against all of our human rules or notions for success. God writes his own rules. And our passage this morning is about God's victory, God's way. We're going to look at Zechariah chapter 9. If you're using a church Bible, that's page 954. Chapters 9 to 14 make up the third and final section of this book. Chapters 1 to 6 were a series of night visions. Chapters 7 and 8 were a challenge to God's people. God challenged them to turn away from their minimalist religion and give themselves fully to God. And now we move into chapters 9 to 14. And as far as the New Testament is concerned, these are some of the most important chapters in the whole of the Old Testament. The four New Testament Gospels refer to these chapters again and again. One writer has said, the number of events and details in the Gospels which are integrally related to Zechariah 9 to 14, is staggering. When the gospel writers describe Jesus' death and the events leading up to his death, they quote these six chapters more than any other part of the Old Testament. As far as the New Testament is concerned, these six chapters are crucial for understanding who Jesus is and what he came to do. 
Not only that, they are crucial for understanding what Jesus is still going to do. The book of Revelation at the very end of the Bible draws heavily on these chapters. And as we turn to chapter 9, we can remember that last week we heard God promise that he was going to build a flourishing city. A city for his people. But of course, if that city is going to be built, God's enemies will have to be overcome. And that's what chapter 9 is about. If you have your Bible open, I'll read the whole chapter. A prophecy. The word of the Lord is against the land of Hadrach and will come to rest on Damascus. For the eyes of all people and all the tribes of Israel are on the Lord. And on Hamath too, which borders on it. And on Tyre and Sidon, though they are very skillful. Tyre has built herself a stronghold. She has heaped up silver like dust and gold like the dirt of the streets. But the Lord will take away her possessions and destroy her power on the sea, and she will be consumed by fire. Ashkelon will see it and fear. Gaza will writhe in agony. And Ekron too, for her hope will wither. Gaza will lose her king and Ashkelon will be deserted. A mongrel people will occupy Ashdod and I will put an end to the pride of the Philistines. I will take the blood from their mouths, the forbidden food from between their teeth. Those who are left will belong to our God and become a clan in Judah. And Ekron will be like the Jebusites. But I will encamp at my temple to guard it against marauding forces. Never again will an oppressor overrun my people. For now I am keeping watch. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim, the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will free your prisoners from the waterless pit. Return to your fortress, you prisoners of hope. Even now I announce that I will restore twice as much to you. I will bend Judah as I bend my bow and fill it with Ephraim. I will rouse your sons, Zion, against your sons, Greece, and make you like a warrior's sword. Then the Lord will appear over them. His arrow will flash like lightning. The sovereign Lord will sound the trumpet. He will march in the storms of the south. And the Lord Almighty will shield them. They will destroy and overcome with sling stones. They will drink and roar as with wine. They will be full like a bowl used for sprinkling the corners of the altar. The Lord their God will save his people on that day as a shepherd saves his flock. 
They will sparkle in his land like jewels in a crown. How attractive and beautiful they will be. Grain will make the young men thrive and new wine the young women. This is God's word. In verses 1 to 8 of this passage, God promises to conquer his enemies. Back in chapter 1, God's spies had reported back after taking a trip throughout the earth. And their report was that they had found the whole world at rest and in peace. The world they were describing is the world that rejects God and rejects his rule. And here in the first three verses of chapter 9, we're given a fuller picture of these enemies of God. People who are complacent and secure in their rebellion against God. God takes us on a tour, starting to the north of Israel and going all the way down the west coast of Israel. This map, unfortunately, doesn't show all the cities that are mentioned here, but it will give you a rough idea. Hadrach was a region in Syria in the north, and it contained the cities of Damascus on the map and also Hamath. God just mentions those cities in passing. But when he mentions Tyre and Sidon, he pauses and he zooms in on Tyre. In the ancient world, Tyre was the prime example of the self-made, self-sufficient city. It was actually an island, 600 yards off the coast. The island itself was about a mile long and half a mile wide. Tyre was as secure as any city could ever hope to be. It was a walled city. And it was surrounded by sea. And because of its position, it was not only secure, it was also highly prosperous. It was a center for sea trade. Verse 3 sums up the picture for us. Tyre has built herself a stronghold. She has heaped up silver like dust and gold like the dirt of the streets. Tyre has hoarded up so much silver and gold that it's as as common as dust or dirt in the city. God has zoomed in on Tyre because it's a good picture of how God's enemies often appear to be. Secure and flourishing. From a human perspective, they cannot be shaken. They lack for nothing. But having picked out the most secure of his enemies, verse 4 tells us, but the Lord will take away her possessions and destroy her power on the sea and she will be consumed by fire. Just like that. In the face of God's judgment, Tyre's security is actually no security at all. And look at the result of what happens to Tyre. Verse 5. Ashkelon will see it and fear. Gaza will writhe in agony. And Ekron too, for her hope, will wither. Gaza will lose her king and Ashkelon will be deserted. 
A mongrel people will occupy Ashdod, and I will put an end to the pride of the Philistines. God zooms out from the city of Tyre and he moves on down the coast through the cities of the Philistines. Ashkelon, Gaza, Ekron, and Ashdod. God says that those cities will see the smoke rising from Tyre and they will know they are next in line. The Philistines have been a thorn in Israel's side throughout the Old Testament. But God promises that their pride will be brought to an end. And just in case we're wondering what reason God has to do this, look at verse 7. I will take the blood from their mouths, the forbidden food from between their teeth. This is a description of idol worship and the rituals and ceremonies that were associated with idol worship. All of that is revolting to God. And he will bring it to an end. But notice, at this point, God begins to write his own rules for conquering enemies. We learn that as God brings an end to rebellion, in some cases, he will end it by destroying the rebels. But not in every case. Sometimes, in his great mercy, he ends rebellion by saving the rebels. Look what God says in the second half of verse 7. Still talking about the Philistines. Those who are left will belong to our God and become a clan in Judah. And Ekron will be like the Jebusites. What this means is that some of the Philistines will become part of God's people. Ekron was the Philistine city that was closest to Israel. And here God compares the people of Ekron to the Jebusites. Now they were an ancient people who had at one time been destined for destruction earlier in the Old Testament. But they ended up joining with Israel. They became part of Israel. And here God says some of the Philistines are going to be like that they will also become part of my people. Here is one way God writes his own rules. Sometimes he conquers his enemies by saving his enemies. Then in verse 8, God promises that those he saves truly are safe. I will encamp at my temple to guard it against marauding forces, Never again will an oppressor overrun my people, for now I am keeping watch. God has promised to conquer his enemies, one way or the other, either by destroying them or by saving them. How is he going to do it? Well, obviously he will send a king. That's how victories are won. That's how rebellions are crushed. And that's how men and women are set free too. 
A king rides into town to fight. So we are ready now for a description of this awesome, powerful king that God is going to send. A king who's able even to overcome the secure fortress like Tyre. We're ready to hear about his shining armor and his iron chariot. We're ready to see his flashing sword. To see him trampling his enemies into the dust. And sparing some of them along the way. And right on cue, the following verses describe for us the king God sends to conquer. Verse 9. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim, And the war horses from Jerusalem. And the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea. And from the river to the ends of the earth. Well, it is a description of a king. But it's not the kind of king we would have expected. And the surprise here would have been just as great for Zechariah's first audience. After the descriptions earlier in the chapter, after all that we've seen of the power and security of God's enemies, the king God promises here seems a bit inadequate. It's a bit of an anticlimax. What kind of victory is a guy on a donkey going to achieve? But God himself makes a big deal about this king he's going to send. He announces him with quite a fanfare. In verse 9, God's city is told to rejoice and shout over this king. We've seen before that Zion and Jerusalem are different names for the same city. God's city is called to welcome her king. But her king comes without any shining armor or chariot or sword. We know that God has chariots and war horses. We've seen them earlier in Zechariah. But God is going to send a king who is lowly and riding on a donkey. That's about the farthest thing you can get from a war horse. And if that wasn't enough, God promises that the army of this king will be equally disarmed. Verse 10, I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem and the battle bow will be broken. God is certainly writing his own rules here. Not only is he promising to send an unarmed king and an unarmed army, in verse 10, God promises this king will conquer his enemies By proclaiming peace to his enemies. Not just the Philistines, but all nations. And somehow, by this unheard of method, God's king will extend his rule to the ends of the earth. 
And don't you see, this is the king God has sent. Jesus Christ was born into circumstances that were lowly in every way. Before his birth, there were question marks over his mother's faithfulness to her fiancé. And when his birth came, he was born in an animal's feeding trough. His parents were apparently dirt poor. We know that because when they presented their baby at the temple, as was the custom, they didn't bring the normal offering of a lamb to give thanks. They brought just two birds. That was an exception the law made for the very poor. And after the poverty of his life, Jesus did arrive in Jerusalem on a borrowed donkey. And later, as he was crucified, he was mocked. He was made fun of because of the great claims that he had made during his life. Luke describes the scene for us as Jesus hangs on the cross. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. From a human perspective, Jesus was a laughable king. He couldn't even save himself, never mind saving a people for himself, never mind spreading a rule of peace to the ends of the earth. This was not the way to conquer. But it turned out Jesus the king came not to destroy God's enemies, but to save them. And he saved them by not saving himself. He conquered by laying aside his power and dying in the place of his enemies. Jesus did not belong in poverty. He did not belong riding on a donkey. He didn't belong on a criminal's cross. But he came to live and die that way because God chose to conquer the reign of sin by setting sinners free. He sent a king who instead of crushing sinners was crushed for sinners. That's how the risen Jesus can proclaim peace to the nations. Not because he has wiped out all the rebels, but because he has taken the punishment rebels deserve. You and I can be eternally grateful that God's king set aside his war horse 
and came on a donkey. We can be eternally grateful that he swapped his sword for a cross. We can be eternally grateful God writes his own rules for conquering rebels. Since Christ came, millions of rebellious hearts have been conquered by God's mercy and Christ's sacrificial love. Look how God puts it in verse 11. Speaking to his people, he says, As for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will free your prisoners from the waterless pit. Many generations before this, when God first promised to make Abraham into a great nation, God sealed his promise or his covenant with blood. And later, when he led Abraham's descendants out of Egypt, at that point God again sealed his promise with blood at Mount Sinai. And when God's lowly king came, After arriving in Jerusalem on a donkey, he sat down to a meal with his disciples. And Matthew tells us this. He took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Ultimately, men and women are not saved because of a covenant sealed with animal's blood. We are saved because of a covenant sealed by the blood of God's King, His Son Jesus. And look what His blood has achieved. In verse 11, God says to Israel, I will free your prisoners from the waterless pit. Now, we have no reason to think any of these people in the original audience were literal prisoners. We have no reason to believe they were in a literal pit. This is a description of our desperate need of God's king. In our rebellion and our sin, we might imagine that we're free. Free to do what we want any old time. But the Bible shows us the reality of our situation. We are prisoners. We are in a pit we can't get out of. Our sin traps us. And it does not give us anything to sustain us. Our sin is a waterless pit. If we stay in it, we're certain to die. Our only hope is to turn to the one who went into the pit of sin and death for us and defeated those enemies and bought our freedom. These verses have described the king God sent to conquer. And they also describe God's victory, God's way. He is a God of justice and judgment. He will punish those rebels who persist in their rebellion. But in his mercy and love, he made a way for rebels to be forgiven 
and set free. He sent a king to die in the place of rebels. A king who would conquer through sacrifice. Back in verse 10, God said that his unarmed king would lead an unarmed army. But look what God says in verse 12. Return to your fortress, you prisoners of hope. Even now I announce that I will restore twice as much to you. I will bend Judah as I bend my bow and fill it with Ephraim. I will rouse your sons, Zion, against your sons, Greece. And I will make you like a warrior's sword. What's this about? Well, remember where we are in history at this point. We are roughly 500 years before the birth of Jesus. So having promised to send his lowly king, God says to these people, the king is coming. But he's not coming right away. You're going to have to trust me. You're going to have to live in hope. I think that's the point of calling them prisoners of hope. They have to make God their fortress and live in hope. They have to take God at his word that he will unite his scattered people into one united people. That's the point of verse 13. Generations before this, Israel had split in two. The southern part was called Judah and the north was called Ephraim. And here God says, my king will unite my people. Judah and Ephraim will come together like a bow and an arrow. Or like a sword. They will be a useful instrument in my hand, God says. The word translated Greece here is a general word that describes God's enemies. Not just the country of Greece. God is saying to his people... I will use you as my instrument. Not a literal bow or sword. Remember, when my king comes, his kingdom is not going to advance that way. But I will use you like a bow, God says. And like a sword in my hands. The New Testament tells us that this promise is being fulfilled through the church today. The church is a weapon in God's hand. God's king conquered through sacrifice. And as his army, we conquer today by announcing the news of his sacrifice. That's why the song says, The church is an army bold whose battle cry is love, reaching out to those in darkness. Today, we read Zechariah's prophecy and we understand that God has sent his king. That part of the prophecy has been fulfilled. And today, God is using the church to extend the rule of his king. But what about those who won't accept the peace God offers in Christ? What about the rebellion that persists in this world? Will it go on forever? Will God's king be rejected by some forever? Will the hope of God's people be put off forever? 
Well, the New Testament tells us that we are living in an era of grace. God is being patient with his enemies. They're being called to bow the knee to his king. But God's patience will not continue forever. The king who came first on a donkey is going to return. And when he returns, then it will be on his war horse. And he will be accompanied by the armies of heaven. On that day, those who persisted in rejecting his sacrifice for sin, they will have to pay for their own sin. The book of Revelation says Christ will return with a sharp sword with which he will strike down the nations. And on his robe, when he comes, will be the name, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That second arrival of the king is pictured here at the end of our passage. Verse 14. Then the Lord will appear over them. His arrow will flash like lightning. The sovereign Lord will sound the trumpet. He will march in the storms of the south. And the Lord Almighty will shield them. They will destroy and overcome with sling stones. They will drink and roar as with wine. They will be full like a bowl used for sprinkling the corners of the altar. The Lord their God will save his people on that day as a shepherd saves his flock. They will sparkle in his land like jewels in a crown. How attractive and beautiful they will be. Grain will make the young men thrive and new wine the young women. These verses describe the return of the king. One way or the other, every one of God's enemies will be conquered. If not through their salvation, then through their destruction. The New Testament picks up on this image of the Lord arriving on the clouds and the trumpet sounding. We'll be looking at one of those New Testament passages tonight in 1 Thessalonians. The New Testament also expands on the details of this last battle that's described in verse 15. But among all of the wrath that will be seen on that day, among all the judgment on the king's remaining enemies, notice what verse 16 says. He will save his people on that day as a shepherd saves his flock. He will save them because they are precious to him, like jewels in a crown. And he has a place prepared for them. It's the place that's been promised all the way through the book of Zechariah. Sometimes called a city, sometimes called a land. In the New New Testament, it's called the new heaven and earth. The place of prosperity where God will live with his people. Grain and new wine here in verse 17 are symbols of that prosperity. The return of the king. The Bible is a book about the greatness of our sovereign God. 
the God who writes his own rules to bring salvation to his enemies. In his great mercy, while we were prisoners in the waterless pit of our sin, he sent his own son to die for our salvation. So when we leave here later this morning, let's leave trusting our great God. Maybe for some of us, trusting him for the very first time as our savior. And for others, renewing our trust in him, whatever our circumstances are. Our God has paid a high price for us. He has a place prepared for us. And he will bring us safely to that place. He has sealed his promise with the blood of his son. He is worthy of our trust. And he's worthy of our worship. We're going to respond to him with worship as we sing together mystery of mysteries and then behold our God.